If you have your Bible this morning, turn with us to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you were here last week, you'll notice that's the same chapter that we looked at last week. And you might remember that we tried to look at the whole thing last week, at all of verses 1 to 40. Um, what you'll notice is that we're coming back. Uh, this is the first time in my short preaching career that I have ever tried to take another swing at something I swung and missed on the first time. Um, and it's going to happen today. Uh, swung and missed is maybe too harsh. Uh, I don't know, you can be the judge of that. What I mean is that there was so much in this passage that I tried to get to last week and didn't have time to get to last week. But so much that we have to hear, we really have to hear and sit under, that I felt like we, we really needed to come back and camp at the second half, or the, second, the last section of this chapter. And one of the main reasons I wanted to do that is that the text is pretty complicated, you know, and I don't want to gloss over, I don't want to ever be guilty of glossing over things that are hard to understand. The other reason is that the subject matter is just too relevant to us. This passage, especially the last section that we're going to look at today, is about singleness and marriage. It is one of the most direct and radical statements about singleness in all of the scriptures. And one of my favorite things about our congregation is that we have a huge percentage of people who are single. I haven't run the numbers, but I'd say it's at least half of our congregation uh, are, are folks who are, who are single. And the other half of you aren't single. So stuff about marriage is relevant to you. So basically this passage has something to say to all of us. And what it has to say is, is, is directly connected to something that transcends even the issues of singleness and marriage. And here's what that is. What it's connected to is living life in this world in light of the world to come. One of the fundamental tensions that the Bible presents us with especially in the New Testament, is that we're kind of in this in-between time. That Christ has come. That He has done His work once and for all. That He has done everything that's necessary for His promises to us to come true. But that He hasn't come back yet. He hasn't come to make real, to make realized all the things that He's promised to us. And so we're in this time that, that, that is often called the in-between time or, or this tension between the already, what's already been done, what's already realized by us, and the not yet, what has, what has still to come. And so much of the New Testament's guidance to us for how to live as Christians is given to us in light of that tension. And this passage in particular takes us straight there. Because what Paul would have us do is see our circumstances right now in this present world that he calls it, as he calls it, in this present world, what he would have us to do is to see those circumstances, to interact with them in light of the world to come, in light of what I'm going to call this morning the Christian hope. That's the phrase we're going to use over and over again. So I feel like before we get into the text, I need to tell you what I mean by that. The Christian hope that Paul wants to be so captivating to our minds and so full in our hearts that we interact with the things of this world with a kind of... Um, I don't even know what the right word would be. With a, a kind of, uh, it's not a lack of care, but we just aren't blown around by them. He, he's calling us to contentment, to sort of remain where you are, as married, single, neither here nor there, because of this great hope that you have. And here's what I mean by that hope. It, part of it is a, is, is a negative statement, part of it is a positive statement. The Christian hope is that something that was true about us has been negated now. That we, as our consciences tell us, as we know when we experience it from others, are not what we are supposed to be. That we have become self-worshippers who love ourselves more than anything else, more than God 
and more than what else God has made. We know that about ourselves. We see it because we run into it in other people. And that shows it to us in ourselves. And Jesus has come to fix that problem. Because what our selfishness has unleashed on this world is suffering and sin and ultimately death. The Christian hope is that these things have been defeated once and for all. That the power of sin is crushed and that the power of death is no more. So that we can look to a a life beyond the grave. We're going to tease out some of those implications today, but that's a big part of what I mean by the Christian hope. That death is no longer the end, even though we deserve it. The Christian hope is also, though, a a hope for a world in which what we taste only in part here, we will know then in full. It's a hope for a world where joys aren't fleeting anymore. Where we don't enjoy something and then see it change. Where we don't enjoy it and then realize it hasn't fully satisfied us. The Christian hope is that everything we love about this world, whether it be our families, whether it be, uh, whether it be delicious food, whether it be the, the pleasure we get from our work, whatever it might be, what we love about this world is only a foretaste of a full and unblemished pleasure that will be ours in, in glory. That ultimately we will be given God himself. That God himself, in this mysterious way we can't fully understand, is what everything good in this life is pointing us to. And that then we will know it fully, what we now know only in part. So the Christian hope is that we are not defined by sin and death anymore. And that we will one day enjoy the full pleasure we were made to enjoy as we trust in God without any fear or any regret. That's the Christian hope. And it's that hope that God has promised to us. And it's that hope that Paul wants us to live in light of. And what we want to see is, what we, is how we will think about singleness and marriage if we think about those things in light of this Christian hope. That's where we're headed. Here's the way I want to frame the here, Here's a question that I think I want us to come back to today over and over and leave thinking about. Okay? All of us, every single one of us, all of us have a vision for what we would like our lives in this world to be before we die. Every single one of us has that. And all of us are offered a promise from God about what He will give us beyond death. All of us have a vision for what we want, best case scenario, before we die in this life. All of us have a set of promises from God about what He will give us if we trust in Him beyond the grave. The question for each of us is which unrealized future does your heart belong to? Which unrealized future does your heart belong to now? Please stand with me now in honor of God's word. Where I'm going to read to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to read verses 25 to 40. This is the word of the Lord. Now, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have troubles. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. 
And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though, as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you, excuse me, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord. How to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks he's not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It's no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, And he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to be be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I want to begin with the hope-centered life. I want to take us to the section of this passage that talks about the future as that thing through which we live in the present. That vision for the future that helps us to understand what we go through in the present. The hope-centered life. Now, the details in this section are addressed to the betrothed person. Someone who has a fiancé that has been arranged for them. And probably, we don't know exactly, Paul doesn't explain, but probably his friends in Corinth had written him a letter asking, knowing maybe that he himself was single, And maybe having heard from other teachers that sex is a bad thing, that it somehow holds your soul back from what it could be. And they're writing to him about what should we do? You know, we're betrothed. Should we go ahead and get married or should we not get married? And Paul's advice isn't firm. It's actually really unusual the way that he reasons about this compared to what he says in other parts of his letters. It's full of caveats. It's full of sort of qualifications it's full of, you know, this is what I'm saying, but, you know, you could do the, go the other way and you're fine, right? You're not sinning. In fact, it's, it, it starts with one of those things that, that there, there's, there's several of these, uh, of these statements in 1 Corinthians 7 that throw us off a little bit in how we should understand the Bible and whether it, whether it all comes from God. Because Paul says things like, I say this, the Lord doesn't say this, this is me here. This, or, or he'll say, not I, but the Lord says this. And he's making a distinction here. He starts there in verse 25. What he's saying there, and in all of those cases, most agree, is that he doesn't have a particular statement from Jesus that he can quote to you on this, and so he doesn't want to say it. He doesn't want to say what he's going to say with as much force as he normally would. Um, Earlier in the chapter, where where he says, not I, but the Lord says this to you, he's quoting something from the Gospels. Not not with quote marks, but he's saying something about the sanctity of marriage that Jesus said in his teaching, that what God has joined together, let no person separate. 
Here, he doesn't have anything that Jesus has said that he can cite to you. He's given his advice. It's an, an issue of prudence. And what he's saying, I mean, hopefully it came through okay in, in the reading. We've read it twice now together. Is that there is, there is something really, really to be said for the single life. He's saying something radical in his time. That the single life offers you advantages as a follower of Jesus that you can't have as a married person. But if you want to go ahead and get married, that's, that's cool too. What he's saying is that if you want to get married, that's not a sin. Now, when you first hear that, you might be thinking, oh, he's, he's damning it with faint praise, right? That by saying, well, it's not a sin, I guess, if you want to go ahead and get married. He's basically saying he doesn't think marriage is a good idea. I don't think that's what he's saying here. I mean, we have plenty of other things that Paul says about marriage to know how much he valued it, how beautiful it is in Paul's understanding, how good it is. I think what he's saying here is that it's not in the realm of sin. Like when we're talking about whether or not you get married or don't get married, all of these caveats that he throws out through the passage we read really contribute to that same point. We're talking about the judgment call here. Uh, there's not a firm right or wrong here. Both marriage and singleness, both of them have opportunities and challenges for living as someone who belongs to another world. So choose what you will. The main thing here is that Paul is saying, yeah, it might be a good thing for you not to get married, but not for the reason you are thinking about. What he wants to correct is their sense that marriage is a bad thing because it's of the body, you know, and and sex is just going to hold you down in your attempt to get free of what the body cares about and to really focus in on the soul. And Paul won't go there with them. That's not the reason you should not get married if you're not going to get married. The reason you should not get married if you choose not to get married is so that you can be fully devoted to the Lord. And the reason that, that staying unmarried can be a better way to be fully devoted to the Lord is that we are living now in what he calls the present distress. And this is where I want to drill down on this first point. He, calls, he says, in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain where he is. If married, stay there. It's not a worse way to be. If single, stay there. It's not a worse way to be. Ultimately, whether you're married or you're single pales in comparison to what's coming. And so it isn't the point. I think that's what he's getting at. In view of the present distress, this in-between time I talked about in the introduction, Stay where you are. Now, verses 29 to 31 make make it a lot more explicit. And here's where I want to look really closely. Because what he says here is, is radical. I think we need to be careful how we unpack it. He says, basically, this is what I mean. So from the last few verses, I'm going to sum up for you the point of them. If it's called to remain where you are, whether you're married or single, not the point. The point is the, the present distress and what's to come. And now he says, this is what I mean. All right, I'm going to walk through this. First, he takes us straight back to the perspective of the future. He says, the time has grown very short. I mentioned this last week, that what he's saying here is not there's not a lot of time left. It's not that that the clock is ticking. That might be implied here, but that's not the word that he uses. In the Greek language, there's two very different words for time. One of them has to do with clock ticking away time. The other one has to do with opportunity, with an era or a season. And that's the word that he uses here. So what's, what's drawn short is this season that's coming, the era, the new world that God has prepared. And, and maybe a better way to say it, one commentator suggests, is that that time, that era, God's future for us has been foreshortened. It's been brought clear so that we can see it in a way that we wouldn't, weren't able to see it before. 
we know what's coming. Think of the difference between somebody who's just gotten a terminal illness diagnosis and the rest of us. All of us are equally certain of death, right? We are going to die. In that sense, we have a terminal illness diagnosis. All of us do. But there's something clarifying, isn't there, about going to the doctor and hearing that you've got one year to live, six months to live. Now, in a sense, that means potentially less actual time, less hours and seconds and minutes. But really, more than that, I mean, the grand scheme of things, in the thousands upon thousands of years of human history, the difference between somebody who's got six months to live and 60 years to live is nothing. That's a breath. So really, it's not about how much ticking time you've got left. It's about the end of your time, this era and its, and its end being foreshortened, being brought into greater clarity for you so that now you're perceiving the world with a, in a new way because this new era has been brought clear. I think that's what Paul's saying. The time has been brought short, and because it's been brought short, it changes our perspective. With the perspective of the future brought into focus, Paul's application here is radical. He says, he's using hyperbolic language, Not to be taken too literally. But he says, if you've got a wife, you act like you don't have one. And we need to unpack that, don't we? (laughs) Um, I think half the time I do act as if I don't have one, to my shame. But Paul's not, not justifying me in my neglect of my wife. What he's saying here is something very different that we need to get clear on. Now, we have other letters from Paul, right? And in those other letters, he talks about marriage and how beautiful it is. In fact... In, first, excuse me, in Ephesians chapter 5, what he says is that if you have a wife as a husband, your job is to sacrifice your body for her. You give up what you want, identify yourself with her interests, and you make it your personal responsibility to make sure that she is ready for Jesus when she dies. That's on you. So far cry from pretending like you don't have a wife. He's not justifying neglect. What he's saying, what he's saying is that is that whether you have a wife or don't have a wife is nothing compared to what God has promised you in the world to come. Saying the same thing about rejoicing and mourning. Paul says, let the one who's rejoicing be as though he's not rejoicing. In another letter, Philippians, Paul's all about rejoicing. He's like, rejoice! Look at these promises you have. Have joy! Live from that! I re-, and he's constantly telling them, telling them the things that he rejoices about. He thinks rejoicing is a good thing. But what he's saying is that the difference between whether you're happy right now or not is nothing compared to what's coming. Same thing with mourning. Paul mourns. He calls for mourning. He calls on us to mourn with those who mourn. Mourning is a spiritually significant thing. But here he says, if you're mourning, let it be as though you aren't mourning. Because compared to what's coming, whether you are happy or sad, single or married, rich or poor in this life, is nothing compared to what God has promised you. Let's let's see if this helps you connect with it a little better. My son Sam, our second boy, was born almost a year to this day. He was born tomorrow be his birthday, uh, but he was born on a Sunday, right? Of course, we would have a baby on a Sunday. Um, yeah, it was it was one of those judgment call things, you know, where Lindsay starts into her labor in the wee hours of that morning. We got somebody on backup for preaching. And so around 7, 8 a.m., we're trying to make that call. Like, do I go in, try to knock this sermon out, and then get to the hospital? Or do we, we just uh, sort of throw in the towel on the whole thing? And uh, we decided to do that, and that was a good decision. <laughs> um, what, what also marked that day 
was uh, the beginning of the NFL season, which, <laughs> which for me means the beginning of the fantasy football season. Because I've got a fantasy league with a bunch of buddies for many years. You guys, half of you probably don't even know what fantasy football is. Do you guys know what that is? Fantasy football? I'm getting no hands, probably just because you don't want to raise your hand about anything. <laughs> well, anyway, it's a game that you play based on a game others are playing <laughs> for money and bragging rights. So anyway, it was, it was the opening day for the NFL season and for my fantasy football league. And you'll be happy to know that the birth of my second son put the fate of my team in that game I'm playing based on a game someone else is playing in a new perspective. It really did. I had no cause for mourning or rejoicing in the way that I would normally mourn or rejoice based on the fate of my team in that game. It was as though I wasn't really mourning or rejoicing. Now, I think I actually did well that day. I think I won, so it was just nice icing on the cake to the birth of my son. But, but it was as if I wasn't rejoicing. It was like it didn't happen. Another way to say it is that in that moment, Sam controlled my heart, right? He, in his own way, was on the throne of my wants and my desires my wishes, my motives, my loves. And therefore, it was him and his birth that controlled my response to the other situations in my life, including this fantasy football league. And here, what Paul wants to control their interactions with the world is not whether or not they're married or single, rich or poor, happy or sad, but the hope that is theirs because God has promised it and he is powerful enough to make it happen. Now, still we ask. God has given us these promises for what's to come. It would really be nice to also get what we want out of this life along the way. Would it not? Some people get the things I want. Have the houses, drive the cars, have the families that I've imagined for myself. Why can't I have both the Christian hope and also the marriage, the children, the houses, the financial security that other people have? There are a lot of ways to answer that question. One that I read that really stuck with me this week from John Piper answering that exact question. He said, he's great at analogies. I really appreciate his analogies. He said that, that asking this question even is like saying, Having the ocean is great and all, but can't I still have the thimble full of water? The second answer to this question is that both marriage and singleness give us special and unique opportunities to grow more holy for sanctification, and they give us unique trials. And that both states, whether you're married or single, happy or sad, rich or poor, are opportunities to fit us better for heaven. They just give us venues to obey based on how we respond to what it is God has assigned to us. So, to use Paul's phrase that comes up over and over in this, remain there with God. Here's a summary. Our metric for weighing our life and what we're getting out of our lives cannot be what we want and it can't, our vision for what our future should be 
All of us have one. We can't let that be our metric for what we're getting out of life. And we can't let it be what other people have. What they're getting out of life. Our metric for weighing what we're getting out of life must be what God has promised us. Here's another way to ask this question, a key question. Does the fact that you're not married or that your marriage is hard mean that God can't be preparing you for a world of glory and joy? Does that logic work? Does the fact that you don't have right now the condition that you, want, that you wished for yourself mean that God cannot be preparing you for a world of glory and joy beyond the grave? No. So pray for eyes that see his promises more clearly than your troubles. Now, I want to I spend the rest of our time drilling this in on the, on the states of singleness and marriage, the hope-centered life applied to whether you're married or not, whether you're single or not. I want to privilege marriage in that. Singleness in the Christian hope is what I want to tease out of verses 32 through 38. We've already, we've already spoken to much of what's in those verses, so I don't want to get too specific, and we looked at some of it last week, so I want to take this opportunity to really sort of sit in it, unpack it together, but I will just point you to the fact that Paul is saying something radical here. In these verses, he's saying that, that if you're single, it's no big deal. And actually, it provides you with an incredible opportunity that you wouldn't have if you were married. He says that in different ways, several different times through these verses, but it's there. He's saying he wants you to be free from anxieties. That the unmarried man or woman has only one thing that they're living for, in theory. That they, that they are after God and his purposes for them. That their hearts can be unmixed in what they love. They can be given over completely to how to please the Lord. He, he wants them locking in on undivided devotion to the Lord. That's verses 32 to 35. Verses 36 to 38 bring up this other sort of interesting case. Like if you already have someone that you're betrothed to, and in that, in that society it had a lot of baggage attached to it, you know, about money, transfer of property, uh, whether or not you could sort of reach the status that everyone wanted to reach back in those days? What should you do? You know, you've already made a commitment to this person. What should you do? And Paul's making the same sort of claim he's made earlier that sort of could go either way. You know, if you think you can pull it off and not get married, then that's a great way to go. In fact, he even wants to say that's a better way to go, in a sense. Practically, it has some big advantages. But he says if you, if you can't, it's not a sin to go ahead and get married. If, if passions are too strong, in this case, most people think that means if, if it's too hard for you not to consummate this relationship sexually with this person you're committed to, then for that person's sake, as well as your own, go for it. Gift from God. If you aren't sort of unable to control your desires, he says. It sounds pejorative. He didn't mean it that way. If you find yourself... That in, in this place where your desires are, are something you can't suppress, then those desires come from God. They're a good thing. Get married and praise Him for that gift. But if you find yourself not desperately needing marriage or wanting what, what comes with marriage, like sex, then that should be seen as a sign from God. God is giving you a gift, perhaps, to live with undivided devotion to Him without this relationship that's going to make you obligated in some new ways. I think that's what he's saying. So what he's pointing them to, I think, is a promise and a calling. In, in Christ, 
in light of the Christian hope, your singleness has a promise attached to it and a calling attached to it. The promise is what we've already spent time talking about. The promise is the truth that God has in store for you as a single person. Greater blessings, greater joys than the blessings and joys of a marriage that you love and children that you love. God has promised you blessings that are greater than a marriage or children that you love. If these promises are true, if you're able to live a hope-centered life, then singleness becomes a God-assigned opportunity for clarifying the beauty of the gospel, of God's promises to you in a way that you could not if you were married. The promise to you is that God has offered you blessings against which marriage and family, children pale in comparison. The opportunity or the calling that God has placed on your life while you're single, as long as he has assigned that to you. The calling for your life as a single person is to clarify from the world, in your, for the world, in your singleness, the beauty of God's promises to you, the trustworthiness of God's promises to you. Here's a couple of examples. This is what you're calling in life as a single person who, who's living in light of the hope to come. This is what you're called to portray, to clarify for those who are watching your life. You're called to portray for them, to to clarify for them that Christ is the truest spouse. That Christ is our truest spouse. The Christian hope is framed over and over again through the New Testament, even through the Old Testament, as a marriage feast. The Christian hope is a hope for us being wed to Jesus, our Redeemer. And what heaven looks like in the New Testament is a wedding reception. And it is one serious party. As a single person, you get to display for the world more explicitly that that marriage is the marriage that you were made for, that you're living for now, that promises you the only satisfying joy. Think about what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22. That's the place that the Pharisees or Sadducees, I don't remember which, came to him trying to stump him, asking him, uh, I guess it was the Sadducees because they didn't believe in the resurrection. So they were asking, they were trying to stump him on the issue of the resurrection. They say, uh, so let's say a guy gets married, dies, brother marries her, dies, brother marries her, dies, and so on. Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And what does Jesus say? You just don't get the resurrection. In the resurrection, they are neither married nor given in marriage. In the resurrection, marriage, as we know it, goes away. Because there is only one marriage. There is room for only one marriage in the resurrection. And that is the marriage between our maker and us. You get to live for that now. And in your satisfied singleness, you get to proclaim to those who are watching you that you get this. You believe it. You live for it now. Marriage is a beautiful foretaste or picture of what God has for us, of His resilient and committed covenant love for us. That's what marriage is for. And that is a beautiful thing. 
But you can do without the trailer as long as you get to see the movie, right? You as a single person can do without the trailer as long as you get to see the movie. And that's the message you get to send by the way that you live. It's a radical statement in Paul's day and in ours day. In Paul's day because marriage was the key to social stability. It was, there was shame and glory attached to it. There was social security attached to it. In our, in our day, there is meaning and purpose attached to it. In our day, without a, a strong a sense of life beyond the grave or of the God who made us being that for which we live, we often transfer those affections from God and His promises to us to our spouse or to the romantic ideal, our pursuit of someone. We need them in order to have a meaningful life. Ultimately, if death is the end, if death is it, then doing without sex in this life is unthinkable. If life is fragile, and if this life is all we have, then doing without the security of a provider and a protector could sound unbearable. If death is the only is the end and the only thing that's worth devoting yourself to now is survival and the satisfaction of urges that keep coming back and are never fully gone. But, if death is not the end, if Christ is the end, then what is there that we can't do without? Not be all else to me. The song says, right? Save that thou art. You get to portray that Christ is the truest spouse, the only source of pleasure, of security, of satisfaction and protection that truly satisfies. You also get to clarify that the church, this church, church universal, the church local, the church is the truest family. There is one relationship that will survive the grave, and it is not the husband and wife relationship. That one gets caught up completely in our marriage to Jesus. It is not the father-son relationship or the mother-son-daughter relationship. That gets caught up completely in God's fatherhood of us. There is one relationship that lasts into into the resurrection among humans, and that is the sibling relationship. We are brothers and sisters, and we always will be. And what you get to do as a single person, if that's the life God has assigned you, and as long as it is the life he's assigned you, is to clarify for the world that that the family you might have in this life pales in comparison to the family you have now and forever. You get to live life with the body in a way that pictures that for all who are watching, in a way that shows them you are not living a sort of half-life now that needs to be fulfilled by this this perfect spouse for you that's out there, these perfect kids, that doesn't exist. And you get to clarify that by seeing the church as your family. Jesus was radical in what he said about the family. He was radical. He said, who are my mother, my sister, my brothers? These, followers of God, those who want to hear my words, these are my family. In that time, family was everything. It was your identity. And Jesus says, when you are mine, you are not theirs. You get to portray that. Overall, 
there, there is an opportunity for you as a single person to have a singular devotion, to be undivided. That's Paul's main point. You have time to give that you wouldn't have if you had small children. Even if you had just a spouse and no children, you have time to give that you would not otherwise have. There are places you can go and live in this world where Jesus is not named that you would have a very difficult time going and living if you had children. Your singleness is an opportunity for undivided devotion to the Lord. That's all Paul's trying to secure. He is not saying, he says it himself, I'm not saying you shouldn't get married. That's for you to decide. I'm saying you don't have to get married. In a culture that tells you you have to get married if you want a full and happy life, I'm telling you, you don't have to get married. Your life is full and complete now if it's lived with singular and undivided devotion to the Lord. That's Paul's point. So does your heart belong to a future that you've created in your mind? Or does your heart belong to and has it begun investing in the one God has promised you that centers on Him and what He offers you? Now, much more quickly... In just a few minutes here, I've got to talk about marriage in light of the Christian hope. And I have to do that in light of the fact that this passage can sound, some people have taken it, to be anti-marriage. Now, I can't imagine where they got that. Maybe from verse 28, which says, Those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. (laughs) I don't think it's anti-marriage as much as it can sound that way on a first reading. It's probably because of what we know Paul says elsewhere about marriage. And, and also probably because of what he says here. He's not anti-marriage. He's realistic about marriage. He knows that marriage is a distraction, right? To be married is to have responsibilities you wouldn't otherwise have, and those responsibilities have to get taken care of, and they can take over your life, especially when, they, when your marriage produces children. Married people are distracted people, he says. That's what he's saying in that central passage about how the single person is devoted to the Lord and what the Lord wants. The married person is trying to please his wife or her husband. Now, some people have, have joked that that section proves Paul himself was not married. If he thinks that's what marriage is about, is just always thinking about how I can please my spouse, only if that were true. But what he means is that, is that you, you have other obligations, other responsibilities. So you're distracted. You're also divided in heart because you do love your families often. There is probably no more common idol in this world than the idol of family and the love that you have for children and for your spouse. Even in an imperfect family, an imperfect marriage, there is a devotion there that threatens our devotion to God, especially in our culture where, where we, as I've said earlier, where we tend to invest this marriage relationship as the thing that's going to give us meaning, or where we're child-centered in a way that no culture ever has been before. And our lives are full of busyness and obligation based on our kids and trying to give them the perfect life. You're distracted and, and divided in, in heart as a married person. That's the challenge of marriage that Paul's trying to clarify for us here. But marriage is also an opportunity if it's hope-shaped. It is an opportunity to clarify that our families are not our primary object of devotion, but our families as a family are aimed at the kingdom of God and its coming. Our families, if they're shaped in light of the Christian hope, will be aimed at that kingdom. So what is your family for? What goals are you aiming at? The way you answer that question is going to to shape how you define what, what your responsibilities to your family are. 
and how badly the distraction or the division of your heart is going to be. See, if you're aiming at the best that this life can offer, chances are what your heart is going to want, what your mind is going to be distracted by, are things like, what school can I provide my kids with? Or can I set aside enough for college? Can I get, and what's it going to take for me to get the upgraded house that I'm wanting? What is it going to take for me to retire with enough security and acceptable standard of living? These are the things of this world that are passing away. And these are the things that, that dominate our minds when we let ourselves go there. When, when, our, when, our, when the answer to the question, what is your family for, is answered in light of this world. If it shows that our hearts are, are locked in on our vision for what our family should be in this life, then our, our minds are distracted and our hearts are divided and we're giving a poor picture to the world. Of, what it's, of what's coming for us. But if we aim our whole family at the things of God and His church, which is to say, if we aim our family and build its life around our local church and the needs of the people that we have bound ourselves to here, well then we're living in a family that is hope-centered, that is given to that world and not to this one. We also have an opportunity to fight division of heart with our spouses from the Lord and to see our marriages not ultimately for what we get out of them the sense of self-fulfillment that we get out of them but for but as an opportunity to leverage for all of its power into making us you your spouse more fit for the world to come see what happens in our marriages is that we that we often give ourselves over to loving our spouses in a self-centered way we love our spouses for what they offer us in this life for security and pleasure and affirmation and companionship. And this sort of love explains why we take problems in our marriages so hard. Because if what you're in your marriage for is what you get out of it in this life, and if this life is ticking away, then every problem that you have in your marriage is a problem that's keeping you from what you hope to get out of this life. It is a problem that is going to make what little time you have uh, disappear even more quickly. And it's going to make it wasted. When our expectations go, met, go unmet, if marriage is defined by this life and what we get here, we can't handle it. We get crushed by it. We go into despair or become hopeless. If, if our marriage belongs to this world, then disillusionment and disappointment is where you're stuck. That's what makes sense because time is running out and you're not going to get fulfillment elsewhere. So we need our marriages to be perfect. And if they aren't, we will despair. But if we live our marriages in light of what's coming, then we'll see our marriages, we'll see our spouses not for what they aren't, but for what they could be. We'll see them for the beauty that's already in them, but that is even now growing and will be brought to completion by Jesus himself. We will see our spouses as projects to be prepared for the one they will fully and finally be married to at the last day. We will leverage marriage for all it's worth to prepare each other to trust in God's promises, to live for Him more fully, to find joy in Him now despite what we get out of this life. Our aim will not be what we can or cannot get out of our spouse that we can't do without, but what we want to see in our spouse for God's glory and for their good. So the question, the question for you is, given that you have a future in your mind of what your life would look like if you could write it, and you have a promise given to you from God 
of what your life will look like beyond the grave if you trusted him. The question for you and for all of us is, which one of those unrealized futures does our hearts belong to? Father, we want our hearts to be owned by you, to be conquered by you, to trust in you and relish you for all that you are. And we know from much experience that uh, we, on our own, in our own strength, are not able to protect our hearts from division and distraction. We are so often discontented. We are so often disappointed because our lives don't match up to what we want from them. How can we be free from this discontent so that we can remain as we are in the life that you've assigned to us with joy and hope? We cannot unless your spirit changes us. So we ask you, for the namesake of your son, win our hearts by your spirit, we pray. Amen.